um, but I like sharing this story because it really, to me, illustrates what we're talking about to a certain degree this morning. And, and I, when I was in, I believe, oh, about middle school, maybe younger, my cousin and I um, loved to go to my grandmother's um, where she worked. She worked at this place called Diamond Caverns. It was a, it was a cave in, in, in cave country in Kentucky, and they had a, a tour you could go on of the cave. And, and so we loved to go on these cave tours, and we had been on them all the time. We got to go free because my grandmother worked there. And one day we showed up to go on the cave tour, and the tour had already left, and my grandmother told us, sorry, boys, you can't go today. It, it's already gone. But we, being adventurous young men and disobedient, disobeyed my grandmother and went ahead and tried to catch up to the cave tour. So we went down in the cave on our own and went down all this flight of stairs trying to catch up with the tour guide and we could hear him off in the distance. And what I didn't know at that time was that in order to conserve electricity as they're going on the cave tour they turn on the lights that are ahead of them while they turn off the lights for the part of the cave that's behind them. And so we're trying to catch up to the tour guide. We can hear him and all of a sudden we hear this big click and all the lights went out. Now, what they call darkness inside of a cave, where there's absolutely no access to light, has no access at all, they call it total darkness. And if you've ever been in total darkness, then you can uh, identify with what I'm talking about. And that is you begin literally to lose your bearings. It's so dark, you actually begin to get dizzy. And that was our case. And we had, there was all kinds of things you're not allowed to touch in the cave besides a big drop-off over to one side and everything. And we began to get very, very dizzy and we actually hit the deck to try to find our way back out of that cave because we were in absolute total darkness. And this cave tour was about an hour-long tour, so we knew we had a while before they came back. And plus, it would look pretty bad. They'd turn on the lights as these two young men just sitting there crawling around on the floor. So we're trying our desperately to get out of this cave. And for 45 minutes, we sat there, felt around, found the steps, worked our way back up the steps until we began to just see some light. And I remember the moment we began to see light. It was just this tremendous uh, joy, really, that began in our hearts. Because these stairs had to go, they went way up, and they had drop-offs on either side, and we were scared to death as we're trying to find our way back up to the light. We began to see the light. We could begin to make out shapes. We could begin to see the stairs, and we were able to get out of that cave. Paul today talks about darkness and light. He draws a contrast between those who belong to God who are children of light and those who don't belong to God who are in darkness. And the darkness that the world is in is not some sort of semi-darkness. It's a total darkness. It's a total darkness and the world is just feeling themselves, feeling around, trying to find some answers to life, but they have no answers unless the light penetrates the darkness. And so we continue today in Ephesians chapter 5. We have um, been going through verse, uh, chapters 4, 5, and then next week, well, in the next few weeks, we'll hit 6. These are the application portion of Ephesians. We previously preached chapters 1 through 3. And chapters 4 through 6 is the outworking of the real dense, deep theology presented to us in the first three chapters. After all, the gospel, the gospel of grace, ultimately leads us to living a certain way. There's application, there's there is practical outworking of, of good theology, of doctrine, of gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now there's the theology, there's the doctrine. And then 
Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there is a lifestyle. There is a way of living. There is a walk that should result from the things we read and understand and embrace and believe in chapters 1 through 3. The walk, when Paul talks about a walk here, he's talking about a way of life, a lifestyle. He's not, it's isn't just an intellectual exercise. Christianity isn't just a, an intellectual exercise where we, we take lots of great, deep information about God and then fail to do anything with it. It should, it should change what we do. The radical, God-centered, God-glorifying work of all sufficient grace that has been accomplished by God through His Son in our lives results in the presence of the Spirit in our lives in such a way that He leads us to walk differently, to live differently. Our lives have been changed. So at the beginning of the application portion in chapter 4, we read this, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul urges us to walk in a manner, in a way that's worthy of this calling, of what's happened in our lives. Later in Ephesians 4, in verse 17, he says this, Now I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So there should also be a difference between our lifestyle, walk, lifestyle, and that of the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles refers to those who don't know God. Okay, ethnically, we are all Gentiles, but if you are a child of God, if you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are a true Jew. You've been grafted into the true Israel, and therefore you are no longer a Gentile in the sense that you're no longer not one of God's people. So there's two aspects to this walk. It's a walk that is worthy of our calling, and it's a walk that's different from those who don't know God. So we see in Ephesians chapter 5, So the first thing in your notes here is the answer to this question. What is a walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called and, should say and, and that is different than the way the world walks? What what should it look like? Okay, well, number one, it's a walk of love. Ephesians 5, 2, that we we focused on this, uh, the first part of Ephesians 5 for the past couple of weeks, it says this, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So it's a walk of love. Today we'll look at it being a walk of light. Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So we've been told to walk in love. We've been told to walk as children of light. And next week we will hit this. It's a walk of wisdom. Ephesians 5.15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but is wise. So these three aspects, these three elements are part, these, these should be what the walk that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called and that is different than the world, this is what it should look like. So the last two weeks we've looked at this walk of love. We saw that it was a, a bitterness killing love that involves kindness and sensitivity towards others, being forgiving and giving towards others, which ultimately is sweet and pleasing to the Lord. Okay. And we also saw that this was a walk filled with gratitude. And that gratitude kills lustful, self-indulgent conduct and conversation. So today, last, week we were, last two weeks, we were focusing on the walk of love. Today, the walk of light in the passage that Deemer just read to us. What is meant by the word light? The light, dark symbolism, 
that's used in almost every religion in the world. Every world religion uses this symbolism of light and dark. But the biblical understanding of light and dark is very different than other religions. For example, you guys have seen the, the, the yin-yang symbol, right? It has the, looks like two little tadpoles swimming together, the, the white over here and the, the dark over here. And, and the, the symbolism there is that there's balance, and they want balance. And they, actually, the, the dark is, is, is necessary just as much as the light is necessary. They sort of blend together that there's this balance between dark and light, good and bad. It's the same uh, philosophical underpinning for the movie Star Wars, right? Star Wars, they, what, what do they say in there? That, that they're trying to bring balance to the force. You have the light side of the force and the dark side of the force, right? So this is sort of the way the world, at least many world religions, looks at light and dark. But the, the biblical understanding of light and dark is very different than that. Okay? The darkness is, is something that is being overcome. It's being destroyed. It's being, light will always win. Light is winning and will eventually totally win over darkness. Hell is referred to in the scriptures in Matthew 8, 12 as a place of darkness. And conversely, God is described in 1 Timothy 6, 14 as dwelling in an unapproachable light. But primarily, the, the light figurative language refers to two things in scripture. Number one, intellectually, it refers to what one knows or what thinks or believes. Okay? You either are in light or you are in darkness regarding what your mind knows, thinks, and believes. And secondly, morally, how one acts, what one says, and what one does. The scriptures also use light and dark to refer to that as well. So light, light would be someone who's enlightened, someone who has knowledge of the truth. Whereas darkness would be someone ignorant of the truth, someone in error, someone with futile thinking. An example of that would be 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So that's the intellectual aspect to light and dark in the Scriptures. But then there's the moral aspect. And morally, light refers to holiness, to purity, and to righteous deeds. And when you hear darkness, it refers to impurity, sinful actions, and evil deeds. So Isaiah 5.20 would be using light in that sort of sense. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. So in that sense, it's referring to moral actions. So what does Paul mean in this passage of Scripture here? I believe he is referring to both of them, because there's many passages of Scripture that both are in mind. Those who walk in light... Those who are light, according to this passage of Scripture, are so intellectually, they know the truth, and they are so morally, they're growing in holiness and purity. All of this flows out of God, who is light, and thus we are children of light, acting like our Father. So it's both a knowledge of the truth and a truth that transforms our actions. So in this case here this morning, I want us to notice a few things about the walk of light. And here's the first point. Oop, go back for me, guys. Here's the first point. No, the other direction. There we go. The walk of light requires transformation. The walk of light requires transformation. Verse 7, Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were 
darkness, but now you are light. And I touched on this some last week. You were darkness, you are light. It doesn't say you were in darkness and you are in light, which that was true too. But the focus that Paul's bringing attention to here is a radical transformation. There's a change. You've been, you've been changed from dark, you were darkness, and now you are light. The very essence of who we were has been transformed. Of course, this does not mean that we lose our personalities and our talents and our specific bents, but, but now it's all been reoriented. It's all been recreated for God's purposes, and we have become light. Paul is a great example of this. He still, can, he still has a passionate, zealous personality. His personality doesn't change, but his focus changes when he literally sees light When Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and his life is radically transformed and now all that passion and all that zeal and all that knowledge that he had has been reoriented for God's purposes because he's been changed from darkness to light. We were dead and we are alive now. We were alienated rebels and we are children now. We have been radically and fundamentally changed. We have been changed intellectually. We've been changed morally. But our thinking and our actions have been totally changed. Both our thinking and our actions have been changed. We have not been improved. Christianity is not about an improvement process. Come to church, get better, get better at this, get better at that, get better at all the things you do in your life, become a better employee. It's not that you're improved, okay? It's not that you're adapted. It's that we have been regenerated, we've been recreated, we've been made new, we've been made alive. We once were dead. We were darkness. We were sons of disobedience. Uh, This is an important thing to understand, that we were darkness. The total depravity of man. I I mentioned a few weeks back that I have the joy of teaching a a small apologetics class right now to a few homeschoolers. And and boy, I had to drive this point home this last week, of the, the, the point of total depravity. Because humanity, mankind... By our, by our own sinful nature, believe that we're, we're, we, got, we got some good in us. There's, there's good here. And, and I tried to help them understand that you can't fully understand grace and the magnitude of grace if we don't understand and embrace our depravity. And it doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we ever could be. It doesn't mean that everybody's like Hitler. That's not what the doctrine of total depravity means, but it does mean that we are by nature children of wrath because sin puts us at enmity with God. We're rebels. And therefore we have nothing good in and of ourselves. Our own, we're all without hope, any, without any inclination towards God. Even our good deeds are considered filthy rags before God, according to Isaiah. We are darkness. We're not just in darkness. We are not just victims. Because this is what the kids were saying at the, at the class. Well, it's just, you know, Adam and Eve's fault. And we're just victims. We're not just victims. We're rebels. We've got to understand that. We're not just in darkness. We are darkness if we are separated from Christ. And that's the emphasis Paul is putting here as he uses these words. No doubt man could perform more evil acts towards his fellow man than what he does. But if he is restrained from performing more evil acts by motives that are not owing to his own glad submission to God, then even his virtue is still evil in the sight of God because it's not aimed at God's glory. It's not for his glory. But if we have received light, then we are changed and we become light. We are radically changed and our good deeds have an aim and a purpose. 
And holiness begins to take over, and our desire to glorify God and enjoy Him forever becomes the purpose of our life. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That does not happen without radical, supernatural, God-enabled change, transformation. So the parallel here draws the attention to how this happens. How does this transformation happen? Well, look at the parallel here with this verse. It says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. So there's a parallel to each, to the first part of the verse and to the second part of the verse. For at one time, that's the temporal part of the verse, but now you were, now you are in darkness, that shouldn't say in, that should say darkness, I'm sorry. You were darkness, and now you are light. And then the second part of the verse adds another phrase onto the end of it, doesn't it? In the Lord. In the Lord. Paul's drawing attention to the, the source of that radical transformation from darkness to light is that we are in the Lord. We were darkness on our own account, we didn't need any sort of intervention. It doesn't, there's no intervention we need to be in darkness. We were there on our own. But we are light now how? In the Lord. He is the one who's made the decisive difference. We did not make ourselves light. God did it. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Okay? In the Lord, not only does in the Lord mean that He, Jesus, was the agent of our transformation, but He is presently the one keeping us light. We are light in the Lord. We were transformed and we are being sustained in the Lord by Jesus. The only reason we become light is Jesus, and the only reason we remain light is Jesus. He's the only reason. Therefore, obviously, if we've been changed we've been changed, everything about us has changed, we need to live like who we are. We need to live like light. We need to live like children of light. Intellectually, we've known the truth. Morally, we should act in new ways. So the second point today is the walk of light produces holiness. The walk of light produces holiness. Walk as children of light, verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit mentioned here can be summed up with the word holiness. Holiness is not optional. It is expected. It is expected if we truly are light. Holiness means that we are growing in Christ-likeness. We are becoming like God in the sense that we are being made into the image of Christ if we are light. I mean, how many of you guys have had this experience? You, you put on a shirt... And maybe you're getting up in the morning, you're just in the closet, lights are dim, you put on a shirt, and, you, and then you get out in the light, and what do you notice? You see a stain you didn't see before, or a stain here. You couldn't see them in the darkness, but now that you're in the light, they become evident. That's the Christian walk, that we are now not only in the light, we are light, and our sins have become so evident, and the things we know that didn't bother us before now bother us, and we begin to work and seek God and ask for His purification in our life to change us. We, we strive to be different. We strive to be holiness, to be holy. 
Purity is the evidence that one is in light, but it's more. Holiness is the only way we'll see God, according to Hebrews 12, 14. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a big deal. Without holiness, you're not going to see God. You're not going to see the Lord. Jesus said something similarly in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Purity is required in order to see God. Holiness is not optional. This is serious. So the Christian, the believer, the one who is in the light and the one who is light should be on, as I've said several times recently, a trajectory toward holiness. Our lives and our conduct must be aimed at purity and holiness. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What I hope is that verses that say, without holiness you can't see God, drives fear into our heart, a holy fear of God that puts us on a trajectory to say, you know what, I can't just go about living life however I want to live it and say, well, hey, I prayed a prayer one time or I got saved at some point in my life and now I can go on using the words I want to use, using doing the actions I want to do, watching the shows I want to watch, but instead that we say, you know what, without holiness I don't see God. I believe that God did a transforming work in my life and the evidence of that is that I don't want to do those things anymore and instead I'm striving by the power of the Spirit to change and to see God make me new in so many other ways and to make me holy. Be holy as I am holy is what God requires of us. This is serious. And so we should be on a trajectory to holiness. And, and so I, I'm putting a chart up here that I photocopied out of, a, out of Grudem's systematic theology that kind of gives us an idea of what this holiness should look like. This is a chart to, to, try to try to give us a visual of what sanctification is. I know I've shown it to some of you guys in here before, but here, here we are prior to conversion. We are slaves to sin. And I think the reason Grudem puts a jagged line there is not to, not to deny total depravity, because we are totally depraved, but that there, there are certainly different degrees of evil that people can participate in. But none of us are holy, none of us are good before God until number one happens, which is conversion. And then the rest of our life is this upward trend. But you'll notice on that growth to holiness, it's got a jagged line too, because that's what the Christian life is like. It's this trajectory towards holiness, towards purity, that we are on, and there are good times and there are bad times, but the overall picture should be a trajectory towards holiness. And so we will have times when we quote-unquote backslide. But you know what? Backsliding for 40 years after someone's made a quote-unquote commitment to Christ is not consistent with what the Bible says should be happening in our life. Okay? Little periods of failure and mistake and correction and discipline that God brings into our life, that should be expected because we, we mess up a lot. But we should be on this trajectory towards holiness and then course we do not attain it fully in this life hopefully you are closer to this perfect holiness now than you were when you started your Christian walk but you will never attain it in this life until death when we are brought into the presence of God and no longer do we have to strive and battle with sin 
like we once had to. This walk of light produces holiness. We are becoming who we already are. We've already said this before. We are justified, righteous before God because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, and therefore we are on this trajectory of becoming who we already are if we truly have been saved. 1 John 1.5 says this, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim it to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship him with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him, I mean with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So if we say we have fellowship with God, but we're not growing in holiness, then we're lying. If our life isn't changing, if our words aren't changing, if our actions aren't changing, if our compassion isn't growing, then we lie. There is an outcome of being light. There is fruit. How does Paul describe holy living here? He says the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Good, this refers to more than just the quality of an individual. Oh, he's a good person. But it refers to the actions, the practical effectiveness of his character. It finds its fullest expression in which is willfully and sacrificially done for others. When we willfully and sacrificially do things for others, that's the image here of this word good. It's action-oriented. The word right here means it's, it's tied to the word righteousness. It means right before God. Right, not in our eyes, but right in God's eyes. The world will call what is right, wrong, and conversely, what is wrong, right, like we read earlier in Isaiah. But God says in 1 John 2, 29, that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. And this is our mandate, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 11, to flee the things of the world, but instead pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. True. We now move from the action-oriented back to the intellectual here when Paul uses this word true. The man or woman who is light and produces should produce truth. He should know the truth. He should study the truth. He should desire the truth. He should meditate upon truth. And he should produce truth. Truthfulness is a huge thing to Paul because truthfulness reflects the very nature of God. If we are true people, if we are honest people, and reliable people, trustworthy people, people with high integrity, then we are people who image God. We've been changed. That old hypocritical, deceptive, false way of life, that past should be fading away as the light takes over and we become people of truth. John MacArthur in his commentary points out that these three things we see here, this, this good, right, true, it relates to our relationship and actions outwardly towards others, the word good. The word right refers to our relationship upwardly toward God. And the word true reflects our inward integrity. All three are the fruit of light. Elsewhere, Paul says in Colossians 1.9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, <coughs> fully pleasing to Him, <coughs> bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's that twofold aspect of holiness, of light again. Increasing in the knowledge of God. It's, a, it's, this, it's this intellectual thing, but also bearing fruit in every good work. 
So here in our passage, Paul speaks of pleasing God as well here in Ephesians. Surely fruit pleases God, and we are to work hard and strive to walk in a manner that bears fruit. Thus we need discernment. So the third point is the walk of light practices discernment. So it requires something, transformation. It produces something, holiness. It practices something, which is discernment. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We must always be asking ourselves, does this please the Lord? Is this the fruit of light? How do I please God in this situation or in that situation? How do I become a fruit bearer in the mundane, everyday exercise of American lifestyle? In the ruts of life, how can I please God? We need discernment. And what does the word discern mean here? Well, it means to test or to examine or to prove or even to interpret. It was literally used to describe the testing of metals as you'd, you'd burn metal to burn off all the impurity. This is what we're to be doing all the time. Testing, not God, but testing us, our motives, our actions. Is this pleasing to God? Is this holy? Is this good, right, and true? If we say, let's say you go to the airport and um, you take your baggage and you give it to those TSA people and they're going to run it through what? They run it through this machine where they can see everything in your bag. And if you have nothing to hide, you're not nervous in the TSA line. You may be a little annoyed, but you're not nervous. You're taking off your shoes, you're putting your bag on there. All right. You're walking through the little thing, hoping you don't have any change in your pocket or whatever. But you're not nervous. Now, the terrorist who's trying to hide something and smuggle it onto an airplane so he can uh, cause damage and, and death, he's nervous as he goes through that. Because there's something he's got to hide that's there in his bag. And so that's, that's what this discernment is like. Is we, we take our life and we run it through God's x-ray. We run it through the Word and we say, God, I, have, I don't want to have anything to hide from you here, Lord. Expose me. Show anything, Lord, that needs to be changed in my life. Run it through. But those who aren't walking in holiness or that, that aren't walk, practicing discernment are afraid to put that bag on that track because they're afraid what God might say and what God might demand to be changed in our lives. What, what might have to change in your life if that bag goes through the discernment process of God's Word? So we place our deeds, our thoughts up against God's yardstick, His truth, His Word, and we see how it measures up. To understand what God is calling us to do here, this word discern is used in a lot of places in the New Testament. Let me just give you some examples. It talks about in Romans 14, 22, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Second 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and Galatians 6, 4. Galatians 6, 4 says this, but let each one test his own work. So it's used in the New Testament to refer to testing your own deeds, testing your own heart. Um, it's used in 1 Corinthians 3, 13, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, and 1 Peter 1, 7 to God's work of testing and trying your faith. 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's also used to examine ministers for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8.22 and 1 Timothy 3.10. 1 Timothy 3.10 is used to refer to the testing of deacons. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. And it's used for us to test 
teachings that we hear and to test spirits. From Philippians 1, 9 through 11 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says this, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. And 1 John 4, 1 says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So this is this word, discernment. We are to test We are to run our lives and to run our deeds through that x-ray machine and test. Run it through the fire and test. Is this pleasing to God? We're to test everything to determine whether or not it brings glory and magnification to God. By exposing how? By exposing what we're doing to the truth, to God's Word, and renewing our minds. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, that's the same word, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we're going through life and we're sitting there trying to figure out God's will, oh God, what's your will for me in this situation? The, the question we need to be asking isn't if there's some mysterious door that God wants us to go through. Door A, door B, like we're, let's make a deal with God. Which is simply to ask, if I do this over here, is it pleasing to God? Let me run it through the filter of God's word and ask, does this bring glory to God? And let me look at this door over here. Does it bring glory to God? And if both of them bring glory to God, go to whichever door you want to go to. It's not some mysterious will. The question is, are you bringing glory to God? That's how we determine God's will for our lives. Is it bringing glory, satisfaction, pleasure to our heavenly Father? Those who are in light are people who test and discern what pleases God And as we test all that is wrong and opposed to God, it's made clear. And thus our walk of light also is number four. It's the walk of light reveals evil. It reveals evil. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Paul repeats himself here. He's already said in verse 7 that we read earlier not to be partners with those who, who are in the darkness. But he's drawing emphasis to, his, to it here again. He says don't, he doesn't want us to partake in or to become partners with those who are unbelievers who are, who are practicing deeds that do not please God. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has what? Light... With darkness. Now, we have to be careful here because I do not think that Paul is calling us to some sort of new monasticism that we're supposed to go live in a bubble separated from the world. Hopefully, you remember I read a passage from 1 Corinthians 5, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe, last week, where Paul talked about you know, you need to deal with the sin inside your own church and don't associate with those sexually immoral in the church. He wasn't talking about the world. He says, you, if, if you're not going to associate with the sexually immoral in the world, then you're going to have to leave the world because there's sexually immoral people all over the place. So it's not calling us to some sort of monasticism, some sort of living in a bubble. The call is for us not to be a partaker and to discern what is holy, that it might lead to a, a lifestyle that where our light shines to the unbelievers. It doesn't lead to separationism necessarily. We still have to have interaction with unbelievers. We should have interaction with unbelievers. But we do not have to participate in what unbelievers participate in. We do not have to partner with them. 
I, I remember having this discussion with a minister five years ago. It was the reason my, the, the, we, were plan, we were planning on planting a church in Arkansas. It fell through, mainly because one of the guys on our team had, I'm not going to go into details what it was, but there were some sinful practices, I believe, he felt in his freedom he could do these things. And I felt like, you know, it's not wise to do it at best. It's maybe sinful at worst. And he said, well, I'm going to keep doing it anyway. He says, the only way I can minister to these college kids is if I participate in this stuff. And I thought that logic was absolutely stupid. We don't have to participate in sin in order to be able to minister to sinners. We are to be light. We are to expose the sin. We don't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Romans 13 says this, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality or sensuality, nor in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What's more, Paul says it's shameful even to, to talk about these things. It's shameful to even have these things in our mind, to focus on these things that the world practices. Let me ask you a question. Would you allow fathers for a, a, a person to come into your house and come live in your home who uses cuss words all the time? who um, is using profanity all the time. Maybe this person's even living in, in immorality in the sense that they're, they have lots of sexual partners and they keep bringing them over to your house. Who knows what else this person's doing, but they're practicing immoral behavior and would you invite them to be a guest in your home and to, to give them a room in your home? And you'd say, no, absolutely not. And I say, we've already done that because we have a big box in the corner of our room called the television. And if we're not discerning with using that box, and we just turn it on whenever we want to and let our kids watch whatever we want to, it's no different than bringing that man into your home and letting him practice those things. We are to be discerning. We are to be careful. Now, there is a balance there. You train your children to be discerning. I don't advocate going out. You can if you want to. And some of you in here don't own televisions. That's fine. Go out, take a sledgehammer to it, do whatever you want to. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying you have to be careful not to become a partner with darkness. You've got to be careful not to become a partaker. And I've become more sensitive to this. Some of the shows that I used to watch and just think, oh, man, that's funny. Just the other day, a rerun was on of a show I, I've always loved to watch. And, and they're laughing about immorality. And I found myself chuckling about immorality. And I thought, why am I partaking in this? And just laughing about this. And so that's the trajectory I'm talking about. Is this holiness that we should be changing and we should be seeing things. That, Wait a second here. I don't want to partake in that. I don't want to partner with that. But still we must live in this world. Even though we are to not be of this world. In contrast to the fruit that we produce, the, the works of darkness are unfruitful. They're unprofitable. They're unpleasing to God. And we are to expose them. But we cannot expose them if we're not in the world. So there's, there's a tension here. You can't expose them if, you're in, if you want to be, live a monastic lifestyle and pull away from the world and put up as many walls as you can. That's your prerogative and your freedom in Christ if you want to do that. But what I'm saying is it's very difficult to be a light in a dark world if you're not also in that world. doesn't mean you have to partake in it, 
but you've got to be interacting with it. We are to expose them. It says expose them. What is the them referring to here in this text when it says, but um, instead expose them? I mean, you read the text, what do you think? What's the first thing that pops in your mind? Expose them. You think, expose those people. Expose those evildoers. That's not what it's talking about. It says expose them, and the them refers to the object of the exposing is unfruitful works. That's what we're to be exposing. We're supposed to be exposing the unfruitful, sinful works, not the people. The object of our reproving, our revealing activity are the works. We are called to expose sin in doing so. Sinners will be exposed as well, but the focus of our reproof is sin. This text also focuses on the the conduct of believers being the primary means in this text by which sin is exposed. Paul's talking about our lifestyle here, living as children of light, walking as children of light. The context here, therefore, is focusing on the conduct of God-glorifying people, a God-glorifying lifestyle of children of light that shines as a beacon to others. In doing so, our lifestyle should expose evil deeds for what they are. Now, this does not mean, though, that we should remain silent or fail to speak against evil in this world. There's always a time and a place for that. There's always a time and a place for that. But it does mean that our lifestyles are an important part, an important means by which God exposes evil in the world. Here's a good example. 1 Peter 2.4. He's talking about how we are to live, um, okay, not like the, the rest of the world. It says to live for the rest of the time that we're here on this earth in the, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Listen to this, verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Peter's talking about a lifestyle that's so different that the world notices. They're surprised. What do you mean you don't want to do this? What do you mean you don't want to participate in this? Don't you know this is fun? Don't you know? What do you mean? And it stands out and it exposes the evil. Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So our lifestyle is a primary means by which God exposes evil in the world. And again, it does not mean we do not speak out against it. The movie that, we, that, 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 that Bobby's going to be distributing speaks out loudly against evil. There's a time and a place for speaking out, but also our lifestyle should be a primary means by which evil is exposed in this world. So in this text, we see that a fruitful, godly, God-imaging lifestyle exposes evil. Such a lifestyle involves our conversation and our thoughts as well. Let us remember that when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. Anything. The other exposing that happens as we walk in light is what I've already talked about when I talk about holiness. And that is the exposing of sin in our own life that happens as we live as children of light. 
and that we should be repenting always, being transformed, being continued to be made into the image of Christ. The fifth point, the walk of light finally precipitates transformation. We're back to transformation. We started with transformation. We're going to end with transformation. Because look at the rest of this verse, verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Our holiness should be transformative. Our lifestyle should be having a transforming effect in the world. One of the reasons I don't believe in a monastic lifestyle is that God wants His people in the world transforming it for His glory. Why does Paul say it this way? For anything that becomes visible is light. Paul seems to be saying here that light not only exposes, but it also transforms. There is transforming power in the light of the gospel. It does expose, but it also transforms. J.B. Phillips, he translates, or I should say paraphrases this last verse like this. He says, it is even possible for light to turn the thing it shines upon into light also. Light transforms. It's like um, kids today will not be able to identify this at all, but used to, in order to get pictures out of a camera, you used to have to take them into a dark room and develop the film. That's what that dates me, but that's how I learned photography in college. I had to learn how to do darkroom work. And I remember there was at least once, maybe twice, where we would be in there. You've you got to be in pitch darkness to get the canister into the, into the chemicals so that it can develop the film. And then you've got to go into a room where there's only red light. And I remember people opening up the door thinking the darkroom was empty, and that light came in. And in that case, it ruined the film. Everything I shot has gone because that light came in. And in the, let's, trans, let's make that a positive illustration. Same thing happens. The light comes in and it should transform everything. All that, that evil that's being hidden in that dark room of every single person's heart, that, that evil is being hidden as the light comes in, it transforms, it changes. Light has a twofold function on darkness. It exposes it and it transforms it. Such is the role of Christian evangelism, isn't it? The light of one soul being used of God to make another light. Of course, not everything will respond, not everyone will respond. Some refuse to come to the light and instead remain in darkness. John 3 says this, verse 19, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Sinful deeds of a person are exposed. And a person either chooses to ignore them as as if they aren't there and thus continued in his darkened state of mind denying and hiding behind those deeds. Or sin is exposed and it's confessed. It's brought out into the open. It's exposed to the light. And thus, those sins are turned from, repented of, and the person himself turns to God and becomes himself a child of light. He becomes light. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24. But if all prophesy, if all prophecy prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, this is talking about how we practice church. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is counted 
called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This should inform the way we do church, by the way. This text right here. Do we emulate the works of darkness to try to attract those who are in the darkness? So that we can, hey, hopefully share a little bit of light in the midst of us copying the darkness? Or do we do something different and act and sing songs that are holy songs that broadcast the light, that are prophetic songs that proclaim the gospel? Is that what we do? Do I come up here and just tell funny stories? And make you feel really, really good about yourself? Or do I go out of my way, no matter how offensive it might be, because the gospel is an offense to those who are outside of Christ, and proclaim the gospel and share the gospel and spread the light? According to 1 Corinthians, the way unbelievers are attracted to the church is they come in and they hear prophetic word, and boom! They fall on their face because their evil deeds have been exposed before a holy God. And no, that won't happen to everybody that walks in the door. But those who come, we tailor-make this service to expose the glory of God. It's not a seeker-sensitive service. It's not a believer-sensitive service. It is a God-focused service. I'm tired of the labels. Seeker-sensitive. It's supposed to be about lifting up the name of Christ, shining His glory, and those who who are convicted of sin and fall on their faces before a holy God do, and those who don't, don't. They walk back out because they love their deeds of the darkness more than they love the light. Light begets light. So naturally, Paul ends this little section of Ephesians with an appeal. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's difference of opinion, but most believe this is a, a fragment of an early baptismal hymn that perhaps the earliest churches sang when, uh, when someone was baptized. This, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. It is similar to Isaiah 60, verse 1, and it may be drawn from that as well. Wake up, arise from your slumber, arise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. Sleep. Death, darkness. If you don't know Christ today, that is you. Sleep, death, darkness. So come to Christ. They hear Paul's appeal. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Come to Christ today who is the true light which enlightens everyone who came into the world. Come to Christ today. Jesus Himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let, let's, let's let Paul's appeal to the Ephesian church be his appeal to us this morning as well. So I want to close with that. I want to close with an appeal that if you're here today, I don't care how long you've gone to church. It does not matter to me. If you're not on that trajectory to holiness, don't fool yourself into thinking that I'm there because I prayed a prayer at a certain age. The question is, are you on a pathway towards God-glorifying holiness? Yes, you may be in a down period right now, an up period, whatever, but are you on the trajectory? And if not, and if not, 
if talking about holiness and godliness and you're just like, that just bores me, get to something a little bit more practical for me, like how to fix my bank account. If, 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 if the gospel bores you, then, then I'm asking this appeal. I'm wanting you to hear what Paul's saying and ask yourself, has Christ shined into my heart and made me, transform me into light this morning? That's my question. It's the same appeal that Paul has for all of us as well. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes and let's pray. Let's pray and let's close with a song. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We are a people of unclean lips. But I praise you, Lord Jesus, that at a point in my life that that coal was taken from the altar of the cross of Jesus Christ and placed upon my lips an atoning sacrifice, the blood of Christ was poured out upon me and I was made new. And Lord, I confess I have had an up and down trajectory for the past 30 or something years. And there are periods where the down gets me really down. But God, I know, I have no question in my mind, I can look back and I can see you have brought me a long way. And I know that's the case for many, maybe all in this room here. But Lord, my, my prayer is that there's anybody here that has fooled themselves into embracing a religion, has fooled themselves into embracing some sort of works-based salvation, that they, they did something, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, checked off a card, read a prayer on the back of a tract or something, but they didn't actually submit their life to you in utter brokenness, turning from their sin and trusting in you alone for their salvation. But instead, they've trusted in their ability to repeat some words. That they would hear this appeal this morning and ask themselves sincerely, am I in the light? Am I light? Am I light? Or is there no difference between me and every other person out in the world who's walking in darkness, who is darkness? Oh Lord, that's the question that I want to see penetrate the heart of every person in this room, no matter how far along in their faith they believe they are. Is there a difference between me and the world? The words that come out of my mouth, the attitudes that come out of my heart, the choices I make with my money, the places I go with my free time, the things I tune that big box in the corner of my room into. Is there a difference if a person came, a reporter, were to come into our lives, Lord, and sit in our house and observe us for a week and write down what they thought, would the word Christian, Christ follower, light, ever be written down on their pad of paper? So Lord, I pray this morning that you do heart work in every single one of us. All of us need to be growing in holiness. There are stains on us as we continue to walk through lives. Yes, we've been cleansed. We've been given a new robe. But we're still clinging to those old clothes a lot. Those old stained clothes that we need to be setting aside. It's so hard. And so God, expose in us any sin that we need to confess this morning. Any holiness that we need to be growing in this week. And God, do a work in us. Christ Jesus, shine on us. Shine on us and make us light. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. 
Amen. Please stand now if you would as we sing this song and close with a time of exalting our great Savior. Let's close. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. I need Thee every hour, enjoy Your pain. Come quickly and divide, or life is vain. I need Thee, oh, I need Thee. Every hour I need Thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. I need Thee every hour, teach me Thy will, and Thy rich promises in me fulfill. I need Thee, oh, I need Thee, every hour I need Thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee.